14. Let me just make, uh, as far as an introduction here, a reminder that uh, the book of Revelation is not written in chronological order. Chapters 1 through 3 tell of the Lord's letters to the seven actual churches that existed in John's day. Uh, These chapters also paint a clear portrait of the Christianity, of Christianity all the way from the first church uh, until the rapture. Chapters 4 through 11 tell us about the chronology of the tribulation period. Uh, They take us all the way from the beginning to the end of that terrible seven-year period. Of time, And then in chapters 12 through 14, we're taken back to the beginning. And these chapters give us the same time period from a different approach, a different perspective. Uh, we're no longer talking about the chronology of the book, but now we're confronted with the characters of the book. Uh, through a series of seven visions, John takes us once again through the days of the tribulation. Now, in our study of the, the book of Revelation, we've arrived at the seventh of these visions. Visions, uh, These verses close out the pause in the action that we've seen since chapter 12, verse 1. And when this chapter ends, we're going to be thrown back into the heat and the horrors of the final days of the tribulation. And before we deal with those things, John gives us a vision of our Lord when he comes again in power and glory. Now, When Jesus came, the first time, he came as a Savior. He came to give his life on the cross so sin might be paid for and sinners might be set free. When he comes the second time, he's coming as a judge. He's coming to destroy sin, Satan, and all those who stand in defiance to God. And when Jesus returns, he will come in power and glory and judgment, and none will be able to withstand him. And there will be no cross for Jesus the next time he comes. There will be, no, uh, there will be a crown. Uh, there will be no tree for him to hang upon, but there will be a throne for him to sit upon. Now, again, we kind of think about all this uh, that's going on here, and we're told about the tribulation. You say, well, why, why do we need to know all that? We're not going to be here anyway. Well, you do have loved ones, neighbors, people in this world you come in contact with that probably will be unless they come to know Christ as their Savior. And the more you know about what's going to happen, the better you can perhaps help them understand why they need to be saved. So we're going to move through these verses again and catch the vision that John shares of the Lord Jesus Christ in the coming days of his terrible judgment. And so we're going to talk about the judge and his court. Uh, and uh, first thing we'll notice here is the Lord and his returning. Verse 14 of chapter 14. And uh, the image here we're given is of the Lord himself. Verse 14 says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Here the Lord himself, sitting upon a cloud, wearing a crown with a sickle in his hand. So let's look at this image in more detail. First of all, his person. There's no doubt about what John is writing 
He's writing about the Son of Man. He says here, as you may remember, this is one of the titles uh, given uh, to the Lord uh, when he came to this earth the first time. And Jesus used this title to refer to himself some 84 times in the Gospels. Now, it was a way that he most often referred to himself. And this title, the Son of Man, identifies him with mankind. It's, it's his human title. It speaks of his sufferings, his service, his sacrifice. When John sees the Son of Man in the clouds, he is seeing one who came to this earth, gave his life as a ransom for sin. John is seeing Jesus Christ. Of course, we're promised that Jesus Christ will come in this fashion. Revelation 1.7 Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Luke 21, verse 27, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So John is giving us a preview of that glorious day when Jesus Christ will return in glory and power. So we see his person. Secondly, we see his position. When John sees Jesus, he's wearing a golden crown. Uh, the word crown translates really the word for victor's crown. It uh, refers to not so much the crown that I have illustrating here, but a laurel wreath that's given out to victors at the ancient Olympic Games. But the fact that this crown is golden uh, refers, uh, identifies the wearer as the king. When John sees Jesus this time, he does not see a carpenter. He does not see a humble Jewish rabbi. He does not see Jesus of Nazareth. He does not see the Son of Mary. But when he sees Jesus here, he sees the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He sees the one who invaded Satan's territory, carries off a great victory. He sees one who walked valiantly into the jaws of death, shedding his blood on the cross to defeat sin and Satan and the, to liberate sinners. He sees the one who walked victoriously out of that tomb on the third day. John sees the king who has come to take possession of his domain. And when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be any debate. The United Nations will not convene to see whether or not he can reign or not. When he comes, he'll be wearing the golden crown of the victor. This just means that all the battles have already been fought, and he is the winner. Jesus will not rule by, uh, by leave of uh, uh, men, or the, the uh, permission of men. He will rule by his right as creator, Lord, crea uh, Savior, and King. So we see his person, his position, and thirdly, we see his power. When John sees the king, he has a sharp sickle. In his hand, a sickle is an instrument used to harvest wheat. When I was working in the harvest fields of Kansas, I don't think I would have enjoyed harvesting wheat this way. But that's the way they did it back then. When Jesus returns, he's coming to gather his people with his, into his barn as a farmer gathers his wheat. 
and he's coming to cut the wicked uh, down the wicked like a farmer cuts down the wheat. And we see this truth unfold in the next several verses here. But for now, he need, it needs to be said that Jesus can either be your Savior or he can be your judge. If you'll receive him in the days of grace, he will save you and take you to heaven. If you reject him, he will stand in judgment of your life one day. You'll either be, he'll either be your Savior or he'll be your judge. And the choice is yours. So the Lord and his returning. Secondly, we see the Lord and his reaping. We go on to verses 15 through 19. And the next four verses here unfold our Lord's plan to bring judgment to this earth. And when he came the first time, he came as the sower. He moved through this world sowing seeds of the gospel of grace. And when he returns, he's coming as the reaper. He will separate the saint from the sinner. He will take the saints home to heaven and the sinner will be cast into hell. There will be two harvests, harvests, as described in these verses. Harvest time in the Bible is often used as a picture of souls coming to God for salvation. John 4, 34 and 35 says, Lift up your eyes and look unto the fields, for they are white and are ready to harvest. These verses, in these verses, the harvest is used as a picture of judgment. So let's see what these verses have to say about the harvest the Lord is going to reap someday. First of all, the reaping of the grain. Verse 15 says, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy, in thy sickle, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now here we have, again, the reaping of the grain. These two verses describe the Lord Jesus is shown thrusting his sickle to reap the earth. Uh, the world is pictured as a, a, a field of wheat. It's ready to be harvested. And the Lord takes his sickle and he reaps the field. And what we're seeing in these verses share the fulfillment of the parable that Jesus told in the Gospels in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's a story of a farmer who sowed a wheat field expecting to reap a bountiful harvest. But his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And the servants wanted to pull up the tares, but the farmer knew that doing so would destroy the wheat. So his counsel was for both to grow together until the time of harvest and when the tares would be gathered and burned and the wheat could be gathered and placed in the farmer's barn. So you have the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now in the same chapter, Matthew 13, Jesus would tell his disciples what the parable meant in verses 36 through 43. And the good seed represented genuine believers while the tares represented false believers. And the good seed represents the saved, and the tares represent the lost. And the problem with the wheat and the tares is that the two cannot be told apart while they're growing. The tares, which is a plant called the bearded darnel, look just like the wheat as it matures. And the difference between the two plants becomes clear when they are near harvest time. The head or the top or the of the tares turns black and stands straight. It's filled with tiny black seeds that 
really, if, if eaten, would cause nausea or even death. It's a natural anemic, and the, uh, uh, when the tares are harf- harvested with the weak, wheat, every kernel must be inspected. The wheat, on the other hand, has a head filled with heavy kernels of wheat, and these kernels cause the head of the wheat plant to bend toward the earth. And so the obvious contrast here is, is between the saved and the lost. One day Jesus is going to gather his wheat, the genuine believers unto himself. The wicked will be cut down and cast into the furnace of fire, and the judgment of the Lord is coming, and the Lord knoweth them that are his, according to 2 Timothy 2.19. Now I want you to notice here in these verses, there's a word in the end of verse 15, it's ripe. It's a very interesting word. It means to be dry or withered. It speaks of a crop that is really overripe. And what the picture of the grace, uh, what a picture of grace and long suffering of God. The harvest of sin has been ripe since the first sin was committed in Eden. And yet God in his grace, love and mercy, has withheld judgment, giving lost men and women ample time to repent. One day his patience will be exhausted and his judgment will come on sinners. You need to search your heart and give diligence to get, make sh- your calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10 Secondly, then, the reaping of the, gr- uh, of the grapes. Verse 17 through 19. Now with the scene, this, the scene changes now and we move from the field to the vineyard. The lost are compared to a field of grapes that is ripe to the bursting. They are ready to be harvested. Now, when grapes are harvested, they are placed in a wine press. In those days, grapes were processed by placing them in a wine press. The wine press usually consisted of two vats connected by a channel, and the grapes were placed in the upper chamber, and the people would climb into the wine press and use their feet to crush the grapes extracting their juice. The juice would then run out to the, from the upper vat through a channel down into the lower vat where it would be collected. And again, this is a picture of the world slated for judgment. The world has rejected Jesus, the true vine. Uh, they have attached themselves to the vine of this world. They have drunk deeply of the wine of sin. They have rejected God, the God of glory. This world has rejected God and his son, but one day he'll come and they will face him in judgment. He will crush this world system and all those who hold to it and under his feet will be like a man crushes grapes. Now this is the very image Isaiah paints of the coming king in Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verse 1 says, Who is this that cometh from, the, from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his peril, per, apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save, wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there are none There was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood 
will be shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year is my redeem of my redeem is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. I wondered, and there was nothing, none to uphold. Therefore, mine arm, own arm, brought salvation unto me, and my fury upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Jesus is coming in wrath and judgment, and there is no escape. The enemies will be thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God, and they will be judged. So we have the Lord and his returning, and the Lord and his reaping, and third, the Lord and his reckoning. Verse 20 will conclude here John's vision. It gives us some insight into where this great judgment will take place. There's coming a day of reckoning, and this verse gives us some much-needed insight. Verse 20, And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse, horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Okay, so the, we have the place of his reckoning. The winepress was trodden without the city. This does not tell us where uh, the event will take place. However, what we're seeing in these verses are visions of the coming battle called Armageddon. Now, according to chapter 16, verse 16, a terrible battle will take place here. And I believe it's this battle that's being pictured here in our text. Now, Armageddon means the hill or city of Megiddo. Megiddo is located in the plain of Estradon. Uh, the location is the site of some famous biblical battles. It was here where uh, Barak uh, and Deborah defeated the Canaanites in Judges 4 and 5. It was here where Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges 6 through 8. It's the same valley as the place where King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in the battle, 1 Samuel 31. King Josiah also met his death in the valley of Megiddo, 2 Chronicles 35. So it is in this valley, the same valley, where the armies of the earth will come together to destroy the king of kings. And it's here in this place that also Napoleon described as a natural battlefield, and that will be the final battle on earth that will be fought. So that place of the reckoning. Secondly, the pain of the reckoning. We're told that the winepress will be trodden. Uh, this word means to crush with the feet. Uh, this is a very vivid description of what Jesus will do to those who have despised and rejected him. Like a man crushing grapes in a winepress, he'll crush the enemies of God under his feet. This is the promise of the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've just recently studied this chapter. But then in, in verse uh, Corinthians 15, 24, it says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up his kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till the, he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did all things, 
which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son of uh, also himself be subject unto him that put things under him, that God may be all in all. You also find uh, this referred to in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 12. But this man, after he hath offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So a person can either be crushed under his feet or they could be held in his arms. Reminds me of that song, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And that's what you are if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. The sinner can either be the focus of God's wrath or of God's grace. If I were you, I'd be certain that I was saved so I would miss this terrible time of judgment. And then that brings us to the permanence of this reckoning. When we... When we're witnessing here, what we're witnessing here is a total destruction of the enemies of the Lord. This is not a probation period. This is not a judgment that will be lifted after a little while. No, this is total annihilation as far as the physical man is concerned. And the image here is one of violence and death. We're told the blood will run as high as the horse's bridles. This is between four and five feet deep. It'll flow in a river some... 1,600 furlongs long. That's about 200 miles. Uh, it's hard to even think about such carnage. Our minds cannot really conceive of that amount of blood. It was said by Josephus, the historian, that so much blood flowed through the streets of Jerusalem when Titus sacked the city that many of the fires that had been set to destroy Jerusalem were actually put out by the blood of those uh, that poured from the bodies of the slain Jews. But the armies of the world will gather in a, in a final attempt to defy God. And Jesus will return by his word. He will destroy the enemies of God and tread them down in the wine press, press of his wrath. Hundreds of millions of soldiers will die in this battle. We'll find that out in Revelation 19. The blood of the fallen will fill the valley of Megiddo from Dan to the north of Beersheba in the south. Men have rejected the precious, saving, uh, life-changing blood of Jesus, and now they're going to wallow in their own blood. So when we read about these events, we cannot really, I don't think we can fully comprehend the total devastation. But the Bible says it's coming. Hey, is not this God's word? Is God's word not true? If God's word says it's coming, it's coming. In fact, some of the Old Testament prophets wrote about this. In Zechariah 14, 1 through 4. Joel 3, 11 through 14. This battle will take place and God will be victorious. I don't know whether any, any person in this room this afternoon will be here on earth. I hope not. But I do know that some in this room may be where Joel spoke of in Joel 3, 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You may be in the valley of decision. You may know someone's in the valley of decision. You need to decide whether you're going to claim the blood of Christ or the, and salvation it gives, or whether you're going to face him someday in, sh in the shed blood of destruction. His blood saves, and yet 
blood condemns us to judgment and to hell. Thousands of years ago in Egypt, God saved his people by the blood of the lamb. They killed the lamb. They placed his blood on the doorposts of their house, and they went in, and when they did, they were saved, safe, and secure. They were under the blood. And when the death angel passed through that night, they were spared because they were under the blood. What about you this afternoon? Are you under the blood? Has the blood of Jesus been applied to the doorposts and lentils of your heart? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? I hope so. Because if you haven't, you'll face him as your judge one day. And this kind of passage of Scripture, this word of God, which is true, should make a person who is without Christ stop and think, do I want to be there around here in that time? I sure wouldn't. And I'm thankful that I won't be because I've trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I hope you have as well. Let's pray.